So good evening. This, this evening I'd like to talk um, about metta, surprise, surprise, and also about compassion, and also to continue this thread of understanding metta as not distinct from mindfulness practice. So as you know, Buddhism is a path, and it's a path from, that leads from suffering, from anguish, to peace, to freedom. There's a Zen saying, uh, when some Zen teacher was asked, what is enlightenment? And the answer was an appropriate response appropriate response. I really like that. And that's really how I understand metta and mindfulness. It's an appropriate response to the moment. Kind, caring awareness. So both mindfulness and metta point to cultivating quality of awareness that's imbued with care kindness. And they also have the, share the qualities, they share many qualities, acceptance, quality of allowing, quality of non-interfering, quality of interest, of curiosity, and a profound acceptance of what is, profound acceptance of our experience. And they both help transform some of the things that we suffer most with. Hatred, fear, anxiety, envy, contraction, worry. There's a beautiful piece of writing from the sixth Zen patriarch who talks about this, this theme of metta, of love and awareness. He says, do not say that awareness and love are different. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the function of love. Love is the expression of awareness. So I think that really describes it well, what we're pointing to, what we're trying to emphasize in this retreat. Sometimes the, these two things, these two practices are seen as quite distinct. Joanna Macy, who's a wonderful teacher and friend and scholar, puts it this way. She says, the Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic, which is not commonly said, as you know about Buddhism. <laughs> Buddhism teaches us to pay attention. And if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever it is. If you mindfully put your attention on anything or anyone, you find love arising for what it is, for whatever it is, anything. You put your attention on it and it reveals itself to you. And maybe you've found that in your practice, in your mindfulness practice. You bring attention to something, to yourself, to a friend, to a flower, to something that might be very mundane, a teacup. And yet when we bring that quality of presence, when we can drop the sense of separation, intuit that connectedness, then everything comes alive. Mary Oliver, the wonderful poet, says, I haven't found anything in this world that doesn't cease to foster wonder and imagination, and admiration, sorry. And if there is something, I haven't met it yet. So both mindfulness and metta awaken this sensitivity. I wonder if you're noticing that already, just with the beautiful rain that came today and the, the aliveness that it brought the, in the creeks and the, the glistening on the leaves and just how it begins to awaken the heart, awaken the sensitivity. 
and we begin to see life through the lens of wonder and mystery and reverence and appreciation and gratitude. This is from the painter Henry Miller, who's talking about painting, taking up painting. And again, he sort of weaves these two themes together. He says, I remember well the transformation took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things, objects which I had gazed at all my life, now became an unending source of wonder, and with the wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup, whatever came to hand I looked upon as if I had never seen it before. To paint is to love again, to live again, and to see again. So, as I have practiced over the years, it it seems more and more obvious to me that all of our practice and all of our insights and all of our work on the cushion and in our lives lead to, uh, they're all pathways leading to the heart opening, leading to love, leading to connection, leading to greater empathy, greater attunement, greater sensitivity, greater understanding. With understanding comes compassion, comes forgiveness. We also might start to intimate our own goodness, that despite how our Buddha nature gets covered over with all kinds of icky, yicky muck, that underneath that we begin to intimate something shining, something beautiful, something very pure lies within. I think we all have some intuition of that, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And metta also begins to awaken the door of friendliness. I I do like that translation of the word metta also. Friendship, friendliness. Because it's much more accessible and user-friendly. Sometimes we can aggrandize love or metta as something um, lofty, as Heather was saying yesterday. And yet we can all relate to the idea of friendship, friendliness. The Buddha said friendship, spiritual friendship, was the whole of the spiritual life. The whole of the spiritual life to cultivate this quality of friendliness with ourselves, with each other, with the world, with our chipped teacups. And the famous phrase, as you know, by the Dalai Lama, who talked about his religion being kindness. It's a similar way of putting it. He said if he had to value, if he had to choose between emptiness and kindness, he would choose kindness. The great Sufi poet put it this way, Hafiz, Hafez. We are people who need to love because love is the soul's life. Love is simply creation's greatest joy. One of my favorite stories um, from the time of the Buddha, so the mythology goes, when uh, the Buddha passed away, uh, his trusty attendant and cousin, Ananda, who had been his faithful attendant and who also was the person who uh, had an amazing memory and recorded, uh, was able to memorize all of the Buddha's teachings so we could could now have access to them. He was found, after the Buddha died, uh, he went went AWOL and um, people got concerned and went to look for him and found him somewhere in somewhere in the forest, very distressed and very upset, as you can imagine, being that close to the Buddha for so many decades. And um, the words that he said in in, in amidst his uh, tears and grief was he kept saying, he who was so kind, he who was so kind. So of all the brilliance that the Buddha had, his mental acuity, his awakening, his qualities, his uh, great teaching skill, 
you know, the many great things that the Buddha had access to, what the person who probably knew him most said about the Buddha was, he who was so kind, he who was so kind. So I think that says a lot about uh, what this practice is about, what the Dharma teachings are about. And we can get easily um, lost in a way about what the essence of the teaching is about. And I think that statement sums it up, that the, the proof of the pudding of our practice, whatever practice it is, is that we become more friendly, we become more kind. So I want to say a little more in general about what matter is and what it isn't. Again, continuing the thread from what Heather talked about yesterday. I remember going to teach a meta retreat last year. I teach at IMS every year, a meta course. It's the sister center on the East Coast. And it's always uh, Valentine's falls in the middle of the retreat, which is a very sweet uh, thing to happen during a meta retreat depending, of course, on your relationship to Valentine's Day, but, you know, <laughs> sort of love is in the air, as it were. And uh, so I was in the car going to uh, the retreat center, and, of course, there's all these ads on the radio about Valentine's Day and flowers and chocolates and, you know. And this one ad caught my attention. It said, if you really loved your partner, you would give her the gift of cosmetic surgery. <laughs> Valentine's. I was envisioning this advertising executive getting fired at the end of the campaign. Somehow I didn't think that would go down too well on Valentine's Day, but there you go. So obviously the love that's talked about in Hallmark cards isn't necessarily the kind of love that we're referring to in, in in this teaching. Sometimes when the Buddha talked about metta, he, um, as he often did, um, would talk about it in a, in a way that set a very high bar, a very high standard. He talked about cherishing all beings with a boundless heart. Cherishing, I think the important word there is all beings with a boundless heart. It's no small task, as you know. Even sending matter to ourselves can be challenging, never mind all beings. It's the kind of love that wants nothing in return, which again is also quite an ideal. We're all very human, and so often our love, our care, does expect something back. There's a certain humanness to that in relationship, the give and take of relationship. And yet the Buddha is at the same time is saying that this quality of metta has this aspect to it that's very unconditional, that is, um, that is rarer in this world, as you know. And when we get into the, into the uh, nitty-gritty of relationship, it can be much harder to dwell uh, and maintain that quality of unconditionality to our affection. He also likened it to gentle rain, which we had today, and then it got hard rain. (laughs) It was hard matter. And again, the metaphor is that the rain falls equally everywhere, that we're not um, making a distinction, that the matter is uh, equalizing, if that's a word. I remember one of my teachers was asked by, I forget who this was, uh, was asked, I think by, I think it was Sharon, was asked by Upandita, Sharon Salzberg, asked by Upandita, who's one of the elders of this lineage, was asked um, after she'd been doing her meta practice for a while, and he said, if all of your categories of people were in the same room, yourself, your benefactor, your friend, your neutral person, your difficult person, if 
they were all in the room at the same time, I actually forget exactly what he said, but he said something like, um, you remember? <laughs> if he had, <laughs> you're right, right. Basically, who, who would you choose? If someone had to die, who would you select? You know, and Sharon's sort of thing, oh my God, I've got to come up with the right answer. This is maybe a trick question. And, <laughs> and of course, ultimately, from the heart of matter, it would be impossible to make a distinction between all five. Hafiz, again, puts it this way. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. So I I like to um, just point to uh, the boundless quality of metta. And we've also talked about the beautiful accessibility and ordinariness of it. But I think it's also, there's a place for referring to that, uh, that potential or the depth, capacity. One of the, again, one of the lineage teachers, Deepama, who taught for some years in this tradition, many of us studied with her, and she would, Jack, I think, once asked her, she, she was a very humble woman who'd uh, done very intensive practice and attained great depth of understanding, and was asked, Jack asked her, you know, what's your mind like? What's, what, what, what do you notice in your mind these days after all this practice and all this freedom? And she said, the three things I notice are peace, concentration, and metta. She was renowned for her powerful metta. And there's a story of when she moved into her apartment building in Calcutta, in a very uh, dense uh, part of Calcutta. The, the, the apartment building where her daughter, her daughter-in-law lived, uh, was full of um, strife and conflicting families and people living on top of each other and a lot of strife. And um, the power of her presence and radiance and calm and serenity and goodwill uh, began to radiate throughout the building. And, and so the story goes, the building uh, came to a lot of harmony and goodwill. Another story that inspires me a lot is the um, uh, the life of Mahagoshananda, who passed away recently. Wonderful Thai monk, sorry, Cambodian monk, who lived in Thailand for many years, studied in Thailand, and um, was studying in Achandamadaro's monastery in southern Thailand when the genocides happened. And at the end of the genocide, he found out that all 17 members of his family had been killed and was tremendously uh, affected by that. And once it was safe to go back, he went back to and began organizing peace walks and uh, marched through, uh, walked through war-torn country, minefields everywhere, people in tremendous fear that the Khmer Rouge, who were still camped out on the borders, would return and killings would continue. And, and so he decided just to walk peacefully from village to village, from refugee camp to refugee camp. And he would chant the three lines, famous lines from the Buddha about hatred. And he would chant, hatred never ceases with hatred. Only by love does hatred cease. This is the eternal law. And of course, that teaching and every other Buddhist teaching had been suppressed Pretty much all the 600,000 monks had been wiped out. So it was tremendous salve and healing for the people for for Mahagoshnan to return and to bring the power of metta, the power of how somebody's transformed it in their own hearts and how much courage that gives to people. So as Heather was saying yesterday, and we've been emphasizing also the ordinariness of metta, the accessibility of the heart to, be res- to respond with friendliness, with warmth, 
just the way we hold the doors open for each other or share an umbrella or save the last cookie for somebody. Or the way we reach out to a child who's crying or a friend or we call somebody who we know is in distress. Very instinctual. We don't have to think, hmm, shall I hold the door open? Do I like that person? No, no, no. No, we just do it. We just, it's, it's the heart's natural response. There's a story from um, Alan Wallace, Tibetan Buddhist teacher. It's like this, he says, imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you so that you fall and your groceries are strewn over the ground. As you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you are ready to shout out, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Are you blind? But just before you catch your breath to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. He too is sprawled in the spill groceries and tomato juice, and your anger vanishes in an instant to be replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you? Our situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery in the world is blindness and ignorance, we open the door of wisdom and love. So I think our situation is very much like that, that we go along uh, potentially guarded and prickly, and then a situation very easily, naturally awakens that, that sense, that innate sense of care, kindness. This is Gary Larson's take on that story. Far side. So there's a picture of uh, the devil, Satan, and he's in hell, and uh, the fires of hell are burning behind him. And he's shouting, Mom, no! And there's a picture of his mom, and the caption underneath says, Despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> There's a picture of the devil's mom with horns and apron, little apron, and little tail coming out, and a little tray of cookies and milk. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. So one of the places that I notice it most, easy, most uh, naturally, excuse the pun, uh, is in nature. I think it's no accident that most monasteries and retreat centers and places of practice like this are located in beautiful uh, nature settings because nature allures us. It lures us out of our self-centeredness, our self-concern. It pulls our attention to wake up to the beauty, to the fragility, to the uniqueness and the joy that's, that's around us all the time. And here we are at Spirit Rock and you can't but go for a pee or go for a cup of tea without having to have some contact with nature. And whether you like the rain or don't like the rain or the cold, at some point the, the natural world will penetrate uh, our hearts and minds and they open, they soften. You know, I know a lot of people feel the most safe, the most relaxed, the most trusting the most um, unguarded in nature, allows the, the defensiveness that we often carry to soften, to dissolve. And I love it in the summer when the, the swallows are nesting here above the toilets and you see the little babies quivering and shaking and, and the heart just wants to, you know, it just quivers, it's so tender. It's the same um, when I talk to people who garden. A lot of people love to garden, and I, and I hear the same tenderness for life, the same, you know, whether it's growing carrots or flowers or orchids, or, it doesn't matter, it's the, just the, the innate desire to want to nurture life and to want to bring it forth. And I call my dad, he's a, he's a king garden, he has an allot, what's called an allotment, uh, which is like a public space to grow vegetables in England. And I'll call him, I say, how are you doing? I'm oh, fine, good, how's the weather? Fine. And, 
And then he'll start telling me about his potatoes and his carrots, and, and it's just it, he's so excited to tell me about what's growing and what's what's fertile and what's abundant, and uh, and it's just that natural um, will of the heart, wish of the heart to want to see life grow and nourish. And they do those studies in hospitals um, where they track where, when patients are given uh, plants to take care of, flowers to nurture, uh, that they, they heal quicker, that their lifespan is longer. Um, if we have just this, you know, in a very sterile situation like that, like a hospital, even just the, just the simple act of tending to one plant is life-sustaining and life-enhancing and nourishing. And one of the things that I think relates to our meta practice is when we go out into nature, one of the things that, that people notice uh, is that nature isn't judging us. Nature, nature doesn't judge. Nature is very accepting. And so when we go out into nature, we, we kind of um, imbibe some of that acceptance that nature is glorious and perfect in its imperfection. And we, we can intuit that sometimes when we're in nature, that, oh, the tree, the oak tree that's all gnarled and fallen branches and some rotting here and moss there, and we don't go, oh, it needs a little tidying up, you know, and get rid of the moss and, you know, get rid of the dead branches. No, we just accept it for its beauty and its idiosyncrasy and its uniqueness. And we, that we can, some of that can rub off towards ourselves. friend told me this lovely story of how she um, uh, notices how the squirrels in winter always fatten up. And they just, you know, they're chowing down the, the acorns and nuts and whatever, and, and then they get really plump in winter. And then by spring, they've, you know, they shed the, the fat because they've burned it all up and they start eating again. And she noticed that she also would put on weight around winter time uh, and then shed it in spring, but she would also give herself a really hard time for putting on weight, and is it such a bad thing? And it was only when she started seeing the squirrels how it was such a natural process that she was able to let go of that judgment. So hopefully we can learn to translate that to ourselves and to each other, to bring that quality of appreciating each other's uniqueness, each other's uh, beauty or completeness. This is again from the poem Poet Hafiz, who seems to be the popular guy tonight. It's called, If God Invited You to a Party. If God invited you to a party and said, everyone in the ballroom tonight will be my special guest, how would you then treat them when you arrived? Indeed, indeed. And Hafiz knows there is no one in this world who is not upon his jewel dance floor. So ultimately, uh, what I've come to understand about metta is it's really an attitude. It's an attitude, it's an orientation, it's a way that we meet experience. It's the way that we meet the moment, the way that we meet ourselves, the way that we meet our suffering, our anguish, our loneliness. How we hold all of that is really what matter is about. It's the way that we turn towards our experience with kindness, with care, with concern, with empathy, with warmth, with tenderness, the friendly attitude. And often when we come on retreat, whether it's a mindfulness retreat or a meta retreat, especially if you've done a lot of retreats, you forget about the pain that happened in all the other ones. And um, you buy the press release of your mind that this retreat's going to be really blissful and easeful and full of radiant loving-kindness to all beings everywhere throughout time and space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes they're like that. And, and that's wonderful. And, but also, um, 
metta is a purification practice. And what that means is that we set the intention to wish to cultivate the heart of kindness. And of course, what we get to see as well as sensing into that is what gets in the way, the obstacles, the blocks, the limitations, the fears, the all the ways that it's hard to open, hard to have that attitude of kindness when we're afraid or when we're feeling jealous or when we're feeling angry or when we're feeling helpless. So um, sometimes it can feel like we're doing it wrong on a metta retreat when we're suffering or when we're feeling a lot of the opposite of metta, when we're feeling a lot of hatred or envy. If you look, if you look across the dining room and someone's looking radiantly metaphor, you go, God, I just wish they'd tone it down a little. <laughs> I remember I was doing this, this three-month retreat once, and a good friend of mine and I were, were doing a metta retreat together. And she's a great yogi. And we were interviewing together, which was very unusual, but that's how it was going. So we got to hear each other's practice. And of course, her practice was going great, and she was in these all these amazing states of mind and matter and absorptions. And, and I was like, God, like, <laughs> all right already. <laughs> and I'd see her walking up and down, and I'd be like, oh, she looks really happy again. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> so we bump up against our humanness. It's always good to be able to laugh about it in retrospect. The mind is a funny thing, have you noticed? The way we, we think that if someone's really happy over there, really metaphor, that somehow it means we're not going to have the same access, that it's just a limited bucket that's stored in this bowl here. and. We only get a little slice of the pie. It's funny, one of the, the Buddha's instructions was to, um, in a way, as a manner of speaking, to hang out with people who really abound in metta. You know, metta is contagious. Love's contagious. Kindness is contagious. So rather than actually depleting our access to metta, if someone's radiantly metaphor, it actually usually pulls us in So we come on retreat, and um, we sit and we walk, and we, we say our phrases, and, uh, and have you know, varying access to this quality, to the sense of metta, to the, the, the attitude of metta. And then we work with the obstacles, and the obstacles tenderize us. You know, we, then retreat's like a, a hot tenderizer. And we go through the waves, just like, you know, a meditation and a retreat is a microcosm of life. And so we go through all the things that we go through in our lives, as you've seen. Joy and sorrow and boredom and meanness and happiness and despair and peace and restlessness. And so we get to um, learn to how to work, how to relate to all of that with kindness, with care, with uh, gentleness. And as the more we learn to do that with ourselves, of course, we have a greater capacity to do that with others, even though you don't get, you know, there's not that much interaction on a retreat, so you don't really get to test it out, um, maybe in your yogi jobs occasionally or something. But you will when you go home, as you'll see. And even if we don't have that inter- much interaction, we can still sense each other, we can still feel each other, we can sense what other people are going through. One of the, the phrases that I like to carry around with me when I'm, especially when I'm on retreat, and I don't know somebody, but I, I'm connecting with that human, shared humanness, is this, is this saying that goes, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Be kind to each person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. And we don't know generally what people's burdens are, but mostly people have burdens. Whether it's, who knows, from their childhood, from their ailing parents, difficult relationships, health conditions we have no idea about, all kinds of uh, struggles and strifes that um, 
behoove us to hold kindly. I know when I started practicing um, metta, I was about 19 and a half. And you use half years when you're 19, so. uh, Because I wanted to be 20. I wanted to be out of my teens. Teens was like so last century. And um, I had a lot of uh, struggle, inner struggle, a lot of um, didn't like myself. I I never quite know why I didn't like myself. I actually really had a lot of strong self-hatred and self-rejection and uh, a very angry young man, very bitter. I was a punk rocker, I was an anarchist. And I hated a lot of things. And that, I guess, that inner turmoil and, and, and conflict made me such, like, like so much suffering brings you onto the path. And um, I'd heard this idea that, 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 uh, that metta, loving kindness, was innate. You know, this thing about Buddha nature, that Buddha nature is essentially kind and caring and loving. And I thought, I'd, felt like I'd missed the boat, because that wasn't my nature at the time. But over the years, I, I, I um, for some reason, took, well, not surprisingly, took like a duck to water, to meta, did it every day for years. And um, the beginning, it felt like I was um, sitting with this big iceberg in my heart that just seemed pretty unsurmountable would definitely sink a Titanic if I hit a ship. And, um, but I saw over the years that it, that it melted. It got softer, got more pliable, and eventually, eventually completely dissolved. <clears throat> and I, begin, I did begin to sense into that, that sense of oh, that, that love really is an innate part of the heart. So I, I, I'm saying that as, um, as, as, a, as a way of talking about the wishing metta for ourselves, as many of you are doing for the bulk of the day, and uh, it's often the hardest part of the practice. Not always. But it's something we're generally not used to. We're generally more comfortable giving and sharing our love with others than holding it for ourselves. I have a few uh, quotes about that I want to share with you. The first one is the well-known quote from the Buddha, who says, The whole world we travel with our thoughts, finding nowhere anyone as precious as one's own self. The whole world we travel with our thoughts, no one as worthy for self-meta as ourselves. I like the way Oscar Wilde puts it. He says, To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong love affair probably more reliable one in my experience. My teacher in India, Punjaji, used to say, marry the one that will never leave you. Marry the one that will never leave you. And he wasn't talking about a person. Another great Indian teacher, Nisargadatta, put it this way, when you know beyond all doubt that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, You will love all naturally and spontaneously. And when you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living thing and the entire universe are included in your affection. Because when we really realize the depth and fullness of our love of ourselves. We realize we're not separate from anything in the universe. So loving somebody else, loving the world, is not different than loving ourselves.
So one of the things that I think is um, useful to pay attention to when we when we hear this idea of love being innate, and you and we're and you find yourself struggling, it's important to look at what gets in the way. What are the obstacles for you? What make it challenging? And I think one of the things that I notice most in working with people is uh, the habit of um, the critic, the habit of self-criticism, self-judgment, the shooting, the high standards we place on ourselves, the my meta should be better mind, meta better mind, meta shmeta mind. Anybody notice some self-criticism happening in relationship to the meta practice? Just not alone up here. Okay, good. It's important to not believe everything you think, says the bumper sticker. So, of course, we can send meta to our judge. It's one way to go. You know, the judgment's coming from a suffering part of our conditioning, of, in, of, of internalizing old ideas and views from people around us from the past that we've internalized and we now believe. More importantly, we can, we can, we can hold ourselves with meta with the pain of that judgment. I know it was a very transforming moment for me when I finally let in the, the, the impact and the feeling of what it's like to continually beat ourselves up. It's brutal. It's painful. And until we actually acknowledge and feel the pain of it and feel it viscerally in the heart, in the body, it's hard to shift it. It becomes just more of a mental exercise. So when I, when I finally felt the impact of all those statements, day after day, you're not good enough, and da, 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 da. And I was like, ow, ow, that hurts. I don't want to do, I don't want, you know, I don't want to hear that anymore. I don't want to believe that anymore. I don't want to take that on as who I am. And ever since that time, there was a fundamental shift in my relationship to it. Here's some you might recognize. This is called the checklist of feeling pathetic. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all your flaws. Relive embarrassing and awful, painful moments that occurred years ago. That's a popular one in meta retreats, you know, because we're so entwined with sending meta to people, wishing people meta, meta that. Um, you know, there's so many stories come up, more than on a Vipassana retreat. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And there's a woman, picture of a woman getting a compliment saying, oh, you look great. And she says, don't patronize me. Resign yourself to believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. Suffering. So it's good to have a sense of humor and some spaciousness with our mind. This little trickster that lives in there. And the more power we give to it, the more power it will have. So before I close, I want to say some words about compassion because um, partly what I've been talking about tonight is also some of the difficulties we encounter, some of the pain, whether it's of the judging mind, all the obstacles to matter. And again, matter and compassion are really um, one and the same. They are, uh, I was trying to think of a metaphor that really uh, spoke to this. I couldn't, the only one I thought of, which isn't really a great metaphor, but I'll say it anyway, is. Um, it's like polarizing sunglasses. So uh, imagine the sunlight is suffering, right? So you're wearing the sunglasses, you're inside, and the sunglasses are a certain shade. And then you go into the light, and the sunglasses naturally turn darker as they look towards the sun, as they look towards pain. That's like, that's like the heart of matter. 
That's a lousy metaphor, but anyhow. <laughs> Is there anything I can think of that, that just... <laughs> better next time, better next time. <laughs> anyhow, so you get the gist of the metaphor, that it's, that it's, it's a, just a natural movement the heart that's open, that's heart that has this attitude of care, of kindness, when it meets pain, naturally feels that tenderness, feels the quivering of the heart, feels the, the empathic response, feels the resonance. So we feel in compassion, is feeling the suffering of another, feeling the pain either of ourselves or another. And so, um, you know, when the, when, when the heart is touched by gladness and joy, which we'll talk about later in the retreat, it feels mudita, just a natural response of celebration. When we feel, when, we, when we're connected to suffering, to pain, it feels compassion. There's a tenderness, there's a distinct quality shift to it, but it's still the same heart of love. And again, you've all. This is something that's innate, that's natural, it's accessible. You all know it. I used to have a problem with the word compassion because it sounds so lofty. Um, but when I started thinking of it in terms of care, and 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 tenderness, and empathy, then I had a little more doorway into it. It's like when you hear somebody crying in the meditation hall. You're in a, one of these interview groups, and someone's in a lot of pain, a lot of tears. And the heart, you know, when, when it's feeling open, feeling touched with compassion, it just naturally wants to take care of that person. It's, it's a movement. You feel it in the body. I'm doing it right now in my body. It's leaning forwards. And it's also an action. It, it wants to express itself. It wants to relieve the suffering. This is from the poet Ryokan. When I think about the misery of those in this world, their sadness becomes mine. Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. That's the expression of compassion. He wants to gather up all the suffering and take care of it tenderly. Another poem where he writes about waking up and his, his robe is wet with the tears of sadness he feels for the pain in the world. So it's also the tenderness that we feel when we're connected to the fragility of life, when we're connected to how difficult life can be, how fragile health is, how fragile happiness can be, or friendship, or love. I was once on a retreat and I walked outside to the bathroom and there was in, in that little room between the bathrooms, there was this little teeny weeny pink mouse like it must have been like one day old or something, all pink and skin and ears and blind and just kind of going, uh, clearly lost from his nest, right? Shouldn't be out of his nest. Um, and just my heart was just it's like pouring with love for this thing. So it's that natural, spontaneous reaching out. And John of the Cross puts it this way. He says, Tenderly I now touch all things, knowing one day we will part. Same, same knowing of fragility and the tenderness. And we get to hear a lot of this and when we teach them. You see it in some of the groups the last couple of days. We come to retreat. And I know the last retreat I taught, uh, the first, people, first three people I saw, one was in, you know, suffering from uh, bereavement, one was suffering from loss of a marriage of 37 years that just broken up, and one was um, loss of a friendship. And so, you know, we're all carrying these uh, burdens, as I said earlier. All carrying various ways that our heart has been hurt. And so it... Um, the practice is asking us to hold it kindly, hold ourselves kindly. 
hold ourselves tenderly. So the last thing I want to talk about is when suffering arises in the context of your practice, let's say in a sitting practice, strong pain, emotional pain, strong memory, strong fear, or or being startled in some way by a sound or by an experience. If If the experience is such that you can just notice it and come back to the practice, then just come back to the practice of the phrases. Often what happens is something arises and it's more appropriate to turn towards what just happened, whether it's an arising of sadness or a memory, triggered some painful feelings, fear or frustration, something is triggered by the critic, and to acknowledge, turn towards the experience and to acknowledge the pain. The first, the most important step with, with um, cultivating compassion is to acknowledge the suffering. So when sadness or grief or fear arises, oh, to, 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 to make a note of that, oh, this is suffering, this is painful. So we're turning fully to meet the suffering. And often we find that, and especially if, if the grief or the sadness or the emotion uh, continues for a long period of time, and the, the metaphrases just aren't speaking to it, like we're in this deep distress over some loss and saying, may I be happy, just doesn't feel true. It doesn't feel resonant with where we are. Then often it's appropriate to, to call on some phrases that more speak to compassion. May I be free of suffering. May I hold this pain with ease. May I hold this sadness, this grief with ease. So something in in a sentence or two that really speaks to the pain that you're in. And sometimes it can be far more effective to both meeting it, feeling it, meeting it with a kind, compassionate attention, and often allows it to move through when it's met, as you know, and the same with mindfulness. And it's no different than, than bringing that lens of mindfulness to it, except it's imbued with that attitude of care. Sometimes it's also necessary, if the pain is particularly strong, to learn how to titrate, to be with the pain for a while, and then purposely shift the attention away to something that's more neutral. It could be a sound, it could be opening the eyes, it could be feeling your body, it could just be sitting with mindfulness and then going back to the source of the pain. So we learn how to moderate intensity. So lastly, um, the practice of metta and compassion asks us, and this will be more so as we leave the retreat, to turn towards the world, turn towards the suffering on a, on a larger scale. We live in a world, as, we, as you all know, I don't need to remind any one of you, the pain that's in the world, the suffering, the violence, the, the torment. And it's a great, it takes great courage to learn how to keep the heart open, whether to our own pain, to people's pain that we know, to those in the world. I know when the, the latest um, uprising happened in Burma, freedom movement to try and create more of a democratic culture and the violent suppression that happened, it was incredibly painful for many of us who have a deep love of Burma and deep love of the people there and the culture. And so it takes a great amount of strength to hold the heart open in a world that's tormented. And one of the things that we often do because it feels instinctual, is to recoil, right? We feel suffering, we feel pain, we recoil, we try to get away, we try to hide from it, we try to suppress it, we try to distract ourselves. Ramdas puts it this way, it's one thing to have our heart engaged, it's another to have it overwhelmed or broken. Here lies our aversion to suffering. We feel like if we go into the pain, we'll be overwhelmed. What I found in my own experience 
two things. One is the, the, the practice of metta and compassion are the greatest allies, the greatest tools that we can draw on to deal with pain, our own pain and the pain in the world. It's a great resource, a great refuge. It's the opposite of what um, Achan Achan Cha talks about. Running away from suffering, we run towards it. Normally our attitude when when we're suffering, when somebody else is suffering, the world is suffering, we run away from it. And of course, what happens when we run away from it? It comes back. It comes back. So it's this tender heart that has the power to turn towards suffering and not be overwhelmed, to be not distressed. So I want to leave you with a story in that light. a different story. This is from a story from Wavy Gravy. My idea was pretty simple in the beginning. Wavy Gravy is a clown, for those of you who don't know. I started a volunteer in wards with terminally ill children or burn victims. Just go in there to cheer them up a little, spread around some giggles, gradually developed that I was going going to go in as a clown. It's a little tricky coming in. Some kids, when they see a clown, they think they're going to be eaten alive. And kids in hospitals and burn units, of course, are pretty shaky. So it's always good to lead with some bubbles, just blow some bubbles around the ward. Then I'll move from bed to bed, just feeling out whatever's appropriate, maybe checkers or blackjack or go fish. But things get really tough in there, I'll tell you. They were tough for me at the beginning, you see some pretty terrible things in those, war- in those wards. Seeing children dying or mutilated is nothing most of us ever get prepared for. There was one little kid in there. He was horribly burnt. He looked like burnt toast. Pieces of his face weren't there. Pieces of his ears were missing. Where was his mouth? You could hardly tell who he was. There was no way of pinning a person to the face, what little there was of it. It was just terrible, just mind-boggling. My jaw dropped. I gasped and I comp- and I came completely unglued. Notice what you're feeling as you're listening to this. So there we were, burnt toast and unglued clown. Quite a sight, I bet. And I'm fighting just to stay there, trying to find a way to get past my horror. All of a sudden, this other little kid comes whizzing by. I think he was skidding along with his IV pole, and he stops and kind of pushes around me and looks into the crib at this other kid and comes out with, Hey, you, ugly! Just like that. And the burnt kid made this rough, gurgling laugh kind of noise, and his face moved around, and all of a sudden, I just went for the eyes. And we locked up right there, and everything else just dissolved. It was like going through a tunnel right to his heart. And all the burnt flesh disappeared, and I saw him from another place. We settled right in. You ugly, right. He ugly. He probably knows how ugly he is more than anyone else. And if he's got to deal with people hanging around with saliva coming out of their mouths, it's going to be extra horrible. But if somebody just meets him in the eye and says, hey, what's happening? Want to hear a riddle? So being able to look you ugly in the eye, that's done a lot for me. Because once I do that, I can go on to see what might be done that can ease things up. And you get all kinds of inspiration. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings know the heart of kindness. May all beings dwell in the heart of compassion.
So it's time for some walking practice, and we'll see you back at 9 o'clock for some sitting and some chanting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.